first letter to Timothy and continue there as we learn from the Lord and His Word. I want to read the first chapter so that we have all of the context in our minds and ears this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and fathers and murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding the faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among who are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's still so much. I don't know how long I'll be here. I really don't. I thought it would be a simple moving right along type thing. So we see and are reminded of the tone of the letter, the occasion of the letter, what Paul's intentions are, what he's hoping to accomplish. And what was really happening there is that there were these two men who were upsetting the faith of some. And their motives were speculative. Their motives were so that other people would agree with them. Their motives were to get people engaged in such a way that they would walk alongside them and their point of view 
in an attempt to steer the church to look and act and think and feel in a way that Paul had not instructed them. Now, this sounds disastrous, and it was, as it is today in our present circumstances, our present life, and throughout all of church history. This type of thing has happened over and over again, and it will continue to happen until the Lord of glory condemns all those who do not belong to him and establishes life eternal with him for all those for whom he died. When we think about the stress that Paul must have been under, the persecution, the, 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 the malicious maligning and gossip and slander, and then Timothy being Paul's protege and his youth, as we'll see as we continue to look through these letters. Imagine what they would have gone through had they had social media in the first century. The sin that lies deep within the souls of men is on display continually. And the wickedness of it is that it's on display in the name of Christ. Paul would have had a Facebook page had he had social media. Paul would have had a Twitter handle full, full, full. Paul would have been followed in his podcast and his YouTube and everything else. The books that Paul would have published through Amazon would have broken down the servers and people would have flocked to him. And his ministry would be one of what? I mean, look at this. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. Of whom? Of Christ. At the beginning of our service this morning, we read the conversion of Paul. We saw in the scripture where Paul was going through every town, listening and asking and inquiring, do you know this man? Do you know that man? Do you know these people? And digging and, 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 and persecuting and having the authority by the law to seize them, to arrest them, to separate them, to put them in prison and have them executed for their crimes of following Christ. And even when Paul was saved by the grace of God that overwhelmed him, we'll, we'll, we'll read that in a minute. God himself, Christ, speaks to Ananias. What does Ananias say to God? Certainly not this man. Yes, I've heard, he's destroying us, he's hurting us. And Christ says to Ananias, I am going to have him know how much he must suffer for my name's sake, that he might be the apostle to the Gentiles and to the people and to the children and to the kings of Israel. So when Paul writes this letter, he is not irate, indignant, he is not murderous at heart. He does not want to show Alexander and Hymenaeus his divine eye of absolute authority and superiority. He wants them to change. He wants them to change. That they would not devote themselves to these things. And that they would not teach these things. And when that took place, he would have rejoiced because there would be great unity. 
And Paul looks at these two men as he sees himself. Therein lies the problem of misunderstanding the gospel. When we misunderstand the gospel, our testimony is often humanistic. When we misunderstand, we also misapply the gospel. And when we misapply the gospel, we don't love people. We don't submit to the scripture. We don't live in silent service to one another. But we make known our thoughts. We accuse. We write our own narratives. We believe a lie. And then we get as many as can be obtained through whatever means to come around and do the same with us. For then when others are walking in our beliefs, we feel justified. Was that not Paul? Did Paul not spend his entire days before his conversion longing to see purity in the household of God, longing to see doctrine firmly planted in the right place? You know, could you imagine the tenacity of Paul? Could you imagine someone who calls themselves according to the law of obedience, perfect to the Philippians? Paul. According to the law, he says, I was blameless. In other words, there was no man breathing on the planet who could bring a charge against Paul. For what Paul was doing was out of burden and concern for righteousness. The problem is, Paul did not know righteousness if it had slapped him in the face. And in order for him to know it, it had to slap him in the face. So when we read Timothy, when we read this letter, we cannot... Divorce the reality that Paul sees himself in these men. That's why he says it. The point of this introduction is not to establish this strong, tactical, soldier-like, war-minded heroism against this uncanny, unholy, satanic, false teaching. He wants to remind Timothy that he was just like them. He was just like them. And that what God can do is greater than any man could ever perform. God's prescription in Scripture for His work in His people to correct error and to reveal sin and to bring to salvation and all the things related to His sovereign grace are His to do. But beloved... I imagine there were many committees in 1st Ephesus. I imagine there were some meetings in 1st Ephesus. I imagine there were some camel comms. Hey, watch out! And Paul told them all to shut down and to serve. See, this is a letter to an elder and the elder is instructed what to instruct the people. When pastors, elders, much different than preachers. Preachers are not shepherds. Anybody can blah, 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 regurgitate. Okay, Anybody can teach. There is a giftedness to it to some degree. Paul was not gifted in teaching. He was not. Matter of fact, he probably could not even speak a sentence 
clearly, for he expresses himself in such a way that I did not sometimes come and speak plausibly. So when I sound like a buffoon, I'm thinking maybe I'm sort of like Paul, which happens often. And Paul was a shepherd and an apostle, and he taught the shepherds of the church to shepherd the people. We herald righteousness by preaching the gospel. And the scriptures, we, as they give the gospel, we remind the church of the foundation of grace. That we are saved by grace. And the gift of faith is ours to hold and to experience that it points to the finished work of Christ. And we are at peace with God. And we are clothed with a righteousness that is not our own because of what God did to crush His Son. And yet, what does Paul tell Timothy to tell the people? Do not rebuke an older man, young man. Don't you dare say a word to a man older than you. Don't you dare tell anybody anything about him that could damage his character or reputation. How dare you, you pathetic man. You see, don't ever rebuke anyone who's older than you. Isn't that crazy? Well, there goes my Facebook page. Deactivate Twitter. You know one of the most ungodly things that exists in the world today is when people like me think that God's called me to make my entire ministry on what is not right. How good is that? It's like the old gag I heard many years ago and I thought it was so clever and funny. Never could find it again. They want to get you to watch the rest of the news, so they put the weather at the end, right? 90 commercials, 10 minutes worth of news. And I saw this broadcast, and it was, it was a gag. It was, it was a joke. But basically, you know, this guy sitting in there, tonight at 6, blah, 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 or a special alert, you could be eating something for dinner that could kill you. You might be eating it right now. So you said 8. I mean... <laughs> And we live in that fear and that anxiety of what is not true. Let me tell you something, beloved. Anytime we are operating in any spiritual way of living out the gospel and it comes from fear, anxiety, or horror, or terror, it is of Satan. It is demonic. Ephesians 6 tell us it is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the principalities and the powers of darkness that Christ has crushed and overcome. Call that which God calls what God calls it. And so Paul is not fighting against Alexander and Hymenaeus. He's fighting against the enemy who is already lost. So you know what Paul's spirit was? I'm good. I'm at peace. You know, even when we're upset or angry, we can be at peace. How do we know we're at peace? Because we respond in faith. We respond in letting and, and, and informing our emotions that God is sovereign and that he will work this out, not in my way or through me, but in his purposes and timing. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't have to be knuckleheads who are tearing the church apart in Ephesus. It doesn't have to be an elder that's too young to be a pastor. who doesn't really have the chops to know how to do it, so Paul had to teach him how to do it. 
It doesn't have to be, it, you know, it, it could be your work, it could be your marriage, it could be your own mind and the way you think, it could be your health, it could be whatever it might be, it could be the loss of a loved one, it could be all these things, but rest assured, beloved, that God is sovereign over it all. God is sovereign. And that doxology that Paul gives to the king of ages, what king is over the king of ages? No king at all. So what king should we fear? The king of ages. And what does the king of ages say about fearing him? Fear not, for I'm with you. The psalmist would even say, your rod and your staff comfort me. And you lead me. Not shove me, not throw me, not kick me. You lead me into green pastures and by the still water, this tranquility, this peacefulness that the God of grace gives and grants His people. But our flesh is at war. The enemy is always snarling and he always uses others in the midst of us and even ourselves to put us in great fear and anxiety. There is never a time when a child of God should fear anything or anyone or any circumstance, yet we do. There's never a time where we should be suspicious of people and wondering, God's going to get me if I don't do something about it. No, He is not. And because of that, I know when that is the place that that person does not know, nor does he or she understand, nor can they apply the gospel of free and sovereign grace. You see? But yet we're all going to fall into that. What? So how do we overcome those things when our flesh rams up against God's sovereignty, the Word of God comforts us. The people of God have been prescribed to be together that we may equip and minister to each other, to meet one another's needs in such a way that the world looks on and says, this is odd. This doesn't make sense. How are you at peace? It surpasses all understanding. Remember, we talked about that text last week. So Paul's intentions were reconciliation. Paul's intentions were unity. Paul's intentions were that the elders wage the good warfare by teaching and instructing both positive and negative doctrine to correct, to rebuke, to train. What are some other things that the church is told to do? You regard the older man as you would your father. And then you regard your younger men as you would your brother. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You know, as a father, as parents, for those of you who are parents, you have had a season in your life where your, parent, where your children were almost grown. You know what that means? Almost grown. They're grown. They look in the mirror and they're like, man, I'm grown. And then they come out and they try to assert that grownness. And you remind them very quickly, they ain't grown. Why? Go to your room. Give me your phone. Boom! Ah! If you was grown, you wouldn't have a room here. And that would be your phone. You see what I mean? You ain't grown. You got a mustache. That don't mean nothing. I know some boys shaving at 12. It don't mean nothing. And sometimes they tell you what you're doing wrong. Don't you love that? Don't you love when a kid tells you how to parent? Well, you know, a good parent. Or if this. Mm-hmm. I wish I had had like a, a permanent hover camera. 
following me around. It'd be very incriminating. It would be awful, disastrous. But there's some good spots in there I would love to have recorded. How I responded to some of that knuckleheadedness through the years. It would just be, it would be great to see it again, you know? It'd make good, I'd have a good YouTube channel. But they try to tell you. They try to tell you how it is. And there's not necessarily the language, not necessarily the words that come out of their mouths, but it's the attitude within their heart that's the problem, right? Well, I know better than this guy. God's shown me more than this guy. I'm smarter than this guy. I know better, better than this guy. I'm living a better life than this guy, but I'm going to be humble. Hey, what are you... And you get become Socrates, right? For those of you who understand the Socratic method, you just start asking questions. You know, Drive-by questions. It's called the punch in the back of the head. It's a rebuke by default. So the letter here tells the elders what to tell the church. Honor widows. Those who are truly widows. Those who truly can't take care of themselves. And so on and so forth. There's a lot of things. Let all who are under a yoke of, as bond servants regard their masters as worthy of all honor. I mean, that's, that's strong, isn't it? That is completely not woke. Whatever that means today. It means a lot to a lot of people. And I'm not making fun of that. We need to wake up and see some stuff, right? We need to wake up and see the scripture. We need to wake up and understand how to read it. And that's my job. That's the elder's job. Dave Barnes, Jesse Bates, James Tippins. The men who, in agreement, in all things... Do what is best for this church according to the scripture. Urge these things. Urge these things. Urge these things, Paul will tell Timothy. Tell these believers to lay down their opinions. Tell these believers to lay down their false teachings. Tell these believers to lay down all the divisions. Tell these believers to listen to what I've told you to tell them. And if they don't, warn them again sharply. And if they don't obey the prescription of, the, of, of my letter, have nothing else to do with them until they do. You see? Have you ever had a friend tell you to get lost? I have. Right to my face. And it was hard. And then I realized how important what I was talking about was to him. I'm not. You're hurting my feelings. And what you're, what you're trying to do is ugly. And that's, I was thinking about that this past week. I'm going to start saying that to people. What you're doing is ugly. It's mean. Because, see, we can hide behind sin, right? That's sinful. Oh, you know, I got the grace of God. We move right into Romans 8. When I tell you you're ugly, oh gosh, that's an affront. Because we'd rather sin against God who's gracious than be ugly or mean. 
are hateful. But being ugly, mean, and hateful is a sin against God. And anyone who doesn't teach you how you ought to live the gospel together is not a gospel minister. But anyone who binds you to obedience in order for you to be in heaven is also not a gospel minister. There's no good news in any of it, see? Paul was Alexander. Paul was Hymenaeus. 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 However you want to say that. I don't know where we put the accent. That's who he was. And the emphasis he puts here is that there is a God who sent his son to save sinners of which he was the foremost. And, and when we see the teaching of Paul in this text... And then we look at the narrative that Dr. Luke wrote concerning Paul. And we see like, you know, the the sermon of Timothy, right? Timothy was a slave of Christ. A servant to the people of Christ. Because there was a lot of administrative things to do in the body of Christ. And the elders are not supposed to do those things. The deacons, those who hold the office of deacon, are supposed to oversee those things. And that's something that that we're learning very clearly. (laughs) Through trial and error. So we're remedying that. Picking back up where we were from two years ago. To remedy that. To install deacons in our fellowship. Stephen was a deacon and Stephen was a humble man and Stephen didn't speak out against anybody and Stephen did the work that God had called him to and Stephen was considered a righteous person in his life and they couldn't stand it because he followed the prescription of the apostles and he did what was right according to the teachings of Jesus and they people the Pharisees knew that if they could upset the apple cart by getting rid of some guys like Stephen, they'd be making some ground. The blowhards are never a problem in following Christ. Think about that for a second. The bolsterous guys that are always jawing, the women who are always aggravated, the men who are always sinister, They're really not the problem. The enemy doesn't want them out of the way. That's that's the ones he uses. Brothers and sisters, he uses us like that. But that humble servant that does nothing but stand for truth by serving and loving people and guiding them and teaching them with all patience. You know, if you teach the scripture and you have any authority over the church and telling them what they must do, you must be qualified to do so according to Christ. And so, that qualification comes with gentleness and patience and long-suffering. Endure evil with all patience. That's hard to do, beloved. It is not within me. When Paul says here that I thank Christ for my strength, he's saying Christ is the only strength he has. And so when Stephen, man, he preached the whole gospel from creation to the point to where they stood. And then he says something to this crowd. He says, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You know what's crazy? Everybody wants to be a Stephen. But you know when he said that? 
by the sovereignty of God that he may have his head bashed open with a rock. And his brain spilled out. And I'm sorry to be graphic, but that's what stoning is. It's not pelting people that go, ow, ooh, ooh, Neosporin. No, he died. He was murdered. Because when you do what the Lord calls us to, sometimes people murder you. And if it's not by rocks, it's by words. If it's not in the street, it's on social media. And they're always evil in their practice, even if they are made righteous by grace. As your fathers did, so do you. Which one of you, the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Stephen asks. And they killed those who announced before him the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and whom you've now murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. And they could not stand it. So they closed their ears and yelled so they could not hear anything against what was being done. And threw rocks. Rocks. And I don't think we should call them rocks in South Georgia. Rocks in South Georgia are what you skip across the lake or the pond. Rocks are what you throw at a, a dog if you don't want it to chase you. These are rocks. These are rocks that took muscle to pick up. 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds. And then they threw them on top of him. And you understand stoning is that when the rocks were through being thrown... There was nothing but a pile of rocks like a gravestone, and that's where you stayed. That's why they drug you outside the city. Because if anybody took you out from under those rocks and buried you properly, they too would be dragged out and stoned. Church, church division, you better believe it. Yet there were people... He looked up and he says, I see Jesus Christ. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the majesty on high. And they killed him where he sat. And then some unknown people made much to do about Stephen's death. Took his body, carried it through the streets, lamenting loudly. And buried him. Never to be heard from again. <laughs> we don't even know their names. They didn't get enough, they, they weren't long enough to be tagged. They didn't live long enough to be tagged. In chapter 8 of Acts, it says, And then Saul approved of this execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They had to run for their lives. Except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house to house. Dragging by the head. Dragging by the arms. Dragging by the feet. Men and women. And committed them to prison. People before they picked up their stones to follow suit. To kill, Paul, or to kill Stephen. They laid their garments at the feet of Saul. To show legally that what they were doing was authorized by the Sanhedrin. And now this man is telling the elders of Christ's church how to operate. How to deal with conflict. Why? 
Why? Because the minute that we think we have what someone else doesn't have, and the minute that we think we are the great licensed persecutor of God's people or the protector of God's people in any prescription outside of what Paul and James and Peter and those have written to us, we make ourselves to be God. And beloved, there's no hope in that. There's no peace in that. And so the only hope we have in any of it is the hope that we've been given by grace, sovereign and free. Listen to this. I received mercy. The latter part of verse 13 of 1 Timothy 1. I received mercy. And we've talked about grace. We've talked about grace being greater than the anxiety of our circumstances. We've talked about grace being effectual unto salvation. Now we see that Paul never forgot. He never misapplied the gospel because he knew who he was. But when he was what he was, he couldn't see what he was. Now, I want you to hear that for a second. Let me say that again. When he was what he was, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a hater, he couldn't see what he was at that time. But when the grace of God came, what did he see? Paul had the law, but he couldn't see his sin. Paul had the truth in the prophets, but he couldn't see the Savior. There's, a, there's an outline there. Let me come up with another one. Paul knew it. But he says, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's what unbelief is. Ignorance of righteousness. Unbelief is ignorance of grace. Unbelief is ignorance of the gospel. Unbelief is ignorance. Now, it's not the same thing as saying that I have a weak faith or that I'm having a moment of unbelief that is God going to get me through this. See, God hasn't promised to always fix our circumstances, has He? But God has always promised to get us through them, even if it's death. Stephen got the grand prize. He trusted the Lord in the midst of great trial. And he received exactly what God had promised him. A rock to the head and eternal life. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. See, God's grace overflowed in Paul and he has so much faith. He has faith to believe in the faithfulness of Jesus. He has the love of God that takes away all fears. The very next thing he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now I want you to think about this a second. This is the closing argument for his outline for this entire letter. He is saying, listen, what we want for Alexander and Hymenaeus is for God's grace to overwhelm them. That they may be, one, either brought back to the truth and get away from this sin. Or two, be born again to the truth. Jesus came in to save sinners. 
So why would Paul not be a great candidate for salvation? You see, that's the trouble, isn't it, in our culture? That's the trouble. We, we put so much emphasis on salvation experiences, time and date of conversion. And I know some of you understand that and know that. I know some of you have had really hard lives or been in a place where you knew you were deep in sin. But sometimes those testimonies are God changed my life. He, he took me out of drunkenness to soberness. Okay, great. Give the Lord credit for bringing you into that, but that's not eternal life. Being sober is not being born again. I know a lot of regenerate people who are drunks. You see. And anyone who says, well, they're not born again, they don't know the gospel either in that moment. They're not applying it correctly. So we have to be taught the implications of the gospel. We have to be instructed. And we're not going to know that which we haven't been taught. And we're not going to know that which we haven't studied. God, the Holy Spirit, does not, through closed Bibles, teach anybody anything at all. We're not Gnostics. There's no divine spark. There's no, some, there's no extra special hidden movement of the Holy Spirit that we go to bed dumb and wake up smart. Go to bed ignorant and wake up with knowledge. It doesn't work like that. Even we who, musicians-wise, that can, can look at a piece of music and then wake up with it memorized, we still had to have the source. You see. You have to look at it. Even geniuses who can like memorize everything, they have to see the source. Beloved, the same is true for the gospel. Paul would have said he was in the gospel. He was waiting for Messiah. He did say that. That's the point. That was his role. But yet he couldn't see the Messiah standing in front of him. Why? Because as Jesus tells us in John 3, it is not of man to see. It is not a man to live. It is not in man to choose to believe. Believing isn't a choice of man. Believing is a gift of God. Because anytime we can logically break down something by which we can see if it's worthy of belief, we have done that on our own and then we want to give credit for it. Thank you, God, I'm not like that guy who knows not this doctrine. Well, guess what? The one who says, oh God, propitiate for me. That's the one who's been born of God, not the one who has it. Or who says they have it. Self-righteousness comes in many forms. Paul was a self-righteous person. Then God took him out of darkness, blinded his eyes, gave him spiritual sight, and set him on a trajectory to suffer as no man has ever suffered for several reasons. One, because through suffering comes great reward. Secondly, because through suffering comes great humility. And finally, through suffering, we see the power of God only in Paul's life. And there's probably a lot more that I could think of if I had an hour. And that just comes from what Paul said. I delight in my suffering. I fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ for your sake. That is for the church, you know. Why would God save Saul? Because only God could save Saul. Saul is an elect person. Saul is one that God has foreknown before the foundation of the world. Saul is one for whom Christ died and he hated Christ. And Christ came to save sinners. 
testimony of grace is one that says Christ has saved me. This Christ, what Christ, this Christ, what gospel message, this message, this truth, this is the truth. And when Paul was born again, it, it baffled the world. It baffled the world of the way, right? I mean, do you ever really trust the God that tried to kill your family? I know I was trying to kill you and all, but we good, right? I got Jesus now. We, we good? No, we ain't good. Get out of my yard. I mean, I'm sorry. And Ananias wasn't going to be like that either. None of the others were going to be like that. So Jesus had to give Ananias a vision. Because unless Jesus pops up in here and tells me to trust certain people, we're not going to trust them. Who? The guy tried to kill me and my family. He killed my grandparents and all my dogs. And he arrested all my neighbors. I don't believe this guy. I think this is another conniving way. He ain't blind. Throw a rock at him. I mean, can you see the test? I guess he is. Jesus had to bring it to pass. God had to bring it to pass. This mercy that God has given Saul is a testimony to God's grace. You see, it's, it's one of the greatest pictures of conversion that's ever been recorded. Yes, we're all haters of God. Yes, we're all haters of grace. Yes, but we're not persecuting God's people. And did you know the way the first century Christians weren't out there trying to deal? Nobody was out there propagating what Paul was all about and what the Sanhedrin were all about. and where They, they weren't tenacious. I'm telling you, Phineism, for those of you who know history, has destroyed evangelism. The evangelical church, I don't think, has had evangelism correct since its inception. And I don't want to get on that. But I think we need to understand that God is the evangelist. God is the evangelist. His word is the evangel. The good news, the good report, the story of goodness. His word contains then the intricate parts and the myopic details of a specific Savior. This God-man who took on flesh and who became like the creation to save a particular people for himself by sacrificing himself to be the, the, the penalty and the payment of law-breaking. So that God's wrath is finished. It's satisfied. God, will ha God has no more wrath for the sinners for whom Christ died. It's been poured out and finished. Every little drop is gone. We took a hair dryer and we blew the cup out. It's dry. There's no more wrath for those who are, who are in Christ. None. And we know that. And, and, and Paul is emphasizing that. And he's not saying that these men, and especially he doesn't even name the other people who are tagged up in this. We don't do that, beloved. And this is the fifth time I've said that in this teaching. But he does name the men to the elders of the church that he himself has excommunicated from the ministry. To teach them not to blaspheme. So back to this mercy. Why in the world this grace? Why? To show Jesus Christ. To show as the foremost sinner. That Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. His perfect patience. 
Why would he do that? As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You think about Paul's testimony. It's a testimony of grace. It's not a testimony of, I was wrong, I didn't understand, I was ignorant, but I was still in eternal life. Paul never said that. Well, back when I was a Russellite, you know, I was still in Christ. No, you weren't. Well, back when I, you know, did the, did the, did the two-step shuffle and did the turn around into hokey pokey and raised my left hand and said, yes, I want life, that wasn't eternal life. We care more about the fact that how long we've been saved than rather than we are sometimes, right? And then uh, the Hymenaeus and the Alexanders and the people like them sometimes care more about who is saved and trying to prove it than they care about the gospel anyway. So it's a double-edged sword. We're all going to fall into these traps because the culture inundates us. So we can come in here today and we can spend an hour emphasizing the gospel, which is the grace of God for salvation to save sinners, of which Paul is the foremost, and we can find kinship and unity in that and celebrate that with one another. And then one day when some of you come up and say, you know what, today I see the gospel clearly and I've never seen it before, I rest in Christ. Because it's not the presets that we can lay out in an outline that you say, yep, check, 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 I think all these are true, and I know these are all true, that isn't salvation. That isn't regeneration. And I'm sorry that the Reformed tradition has butchered that for so many hundreds of years. It's not salvation. For those of you who know Presbyterian history. In the early 20th century. I'm sorry. It's no different. Having a checklist of things you say are true is no different than checking, do you want to accept Jesus into your heart? Yes. I'm saved. Well, where is your hope? See, God the Holy Spirit puts a hope in us, puts a faith in us, puts a rest in us, puts an assurance in us that isn't always solid, is it? It's like when the wind was blowing the other day. Me and Brother Tom out there, I'm... I was feeling a little nervous. He was on the roof. I was on the scaffold. I'm going, this thing seems a little more shaky than it used to be. I wasn't sure of my footing. Sometimes we don't feel sure of our footing in the gospel. And the last thing we need is someone undoing the power of God in our lives by trying to weed through all the nuanced things that they particularly feel is necessary in order for them to consider you a believer. But there are some essentials. And one of those essentials is that it is not by the will of man. It is not by the decision of man. It is not a choice we make. It is not an aha epiphany. Regeneration is not an aha epiphany. The grace of God does not give us an epiphany. We get an epiphany when we're in the shower. We get an epiphany when we read a good book. We get an epiphany when we study and we philosophize. We, we seek out the truth and we look and we think. Let's just learn that. That means thinking, to seek out what we know. But Paul says, the grace of God overflowed for me. 
the love of God, the power of God unto salvation, that the Spirit of God stopped me in my tracks. And everything that I thought I knew about grace and the gospel and everything that I thought I was in Christ was manifest to be dead works. Dead works. And we give up all of that, don't we? What does Paul say? Everything that I had, I, was, I counted as loss. Everything that I was, I counted as loss. Because that is what the grace of God does. And so that those who saw me coming down the road and went, we're going to die. They got a message of life from Paul instead of death. They got a message not of the letter that kills. The irony behind that is he had a letter from the Sanhedrin. He had a letter from the Jerusalem guard to give him authority to arrest people. Amazing. Just like the letter of Moses, the letter of the law is for the wicked. It is for the destruction of those who are sinners. It is for those who are sinners to know that they are going to die because they are guilty. The gospel says the guilty live. Grace says justice is paid. The opposite of grace is justice. But grace does not exist without justice. Maybe not the opposite, but one of the antithesis. Because grace exists because justice is satisfied. Christ displays his perfect patience. So in this way, Paul is telling Timothy, you've got to be patient. With these people that Alexander and Hymenaeus have hurt, with these people that have been disheveled, these people who have been torn apart, these people whose emotions are on the edge of horror and terror, be patient. Because that's the application of the gospel, right? If God is patient with us, And at the opportune time when He chooses, brings us to life to see His grace, are we not also to be patient with others and pray that God would show them grace? And then that doxology that we looked at last week. The King of ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is why the gospel is a gospel of grace. Sovereign and free. God will administer it where he sees fit, for he is the ruler over it all. And it is free in that he has established every necessary payment for its disbursement. It is free. And you can't ask for it. You can't. Find it under a rock. You can't dig it out of the ocean. You can't dance and clean yourself up. You can only be given grace. By definition, you can be given grace. And the grace of God is the power of God unto salvation for His people. And when it comes to us, beloved, it's just like it was with Paul. It's just like it was with Paul. Just like the woman from Sychar. Just like Nicodemus, though we didn't get the record of that, did we? We just saw... The gospel preaching of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit somewhere, as he saw fit, gave Nicodemus sight. The question then is, what is your testimony? Is our testimony a testimony of this bunch of stuff that we've done and we've discovered and we've come up with and we've established and that we've known and that we've Learned, or is our testimony, oh God, 
has given me mercy. A sinner. And you know, there's no response to that question, is there? It's just an evaluation. And so, some of us in the room today, we're like the Galatians. We've learned the gospel, we've been taught the gospel, and through the gospel, the right gospel. You don't come to faith through a lie and then say you're born again. Let's just, that's, a, that's obvious, folks. You come to faith by the truth, according to the truth, and the truth of God's grace taught to you and instructed to you in the context of the words of Christ. Without the words of Christ, no one will believe. Because what are you going to believe? Whatever we think of. So we believe the truth, and just like in Galatia, then some other people came in and said, well, 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 I don't think you are. I don't think you're good enough. I don't think you're following it correctly. I don't think you're... And it's everywhere. It's a new legalism. It's a new self-righteousness. And it's under the guise sometimes of sovereign grace. And it comes in unawares. And it upsets the apple cart. And it captures weakness and weak people. And it captures people who are prone to anger and frustration. It captures people who are extremely anxious. And it upsets us all. And then we rebel against the Father's prescription to be in fellowship with one another and to submit to one another in service and to submit to one another in Christ because our feelings have overcome the power of God. But the question then, like the Galatians, some of us may be like the Galatians, somebody has come along and upset our focus. And we're considering circumcision. We're considering these things. We're considering those things. And those people are wrong. They shouldn't do that. And as long as I breathe, I'll do my best to protect this body from that kind of stuff. And then there's the others who may very well not be in the faith. May lay down at night and go, well, you know, in vacation Bible school, I, I checked the card and I'm good. That big sign on the way to Burrow. A, B, C, you know. There's a lot of people going to think they're saved because they, they recited that sign. And I've heard it. I've heard it in the last month. I did those things, James. Why am I still suffering? In my soul, I can't be good enough. You said it. You said it. Now, hear the promise of God to His people. The good news of Jesus that because the law is given to show you, you cannot be good enough. And when you cannot see that, you have not been made alive. So your only hope is the mercy of God. It's like the air's poked out of you. I almost shudder to even share personal things anymore from this pulpit. Because the heinousness of self-righteous people. Beloved, don't be fearful. They hated Christ. We can't hate others. And the very one who hated Christ the most, God loved. God loved him and brought him to faith. Now think about that. Does that not change how we confess the gospel? Does that not change how we look at others when they hurt us or upset us? 
Does that not change knowing that we are or do we not see ourselves as the sinners that we are? And even more distinctly, the sinners that we were in unbelief or self-righteousness or false religion or Baptist or Methodist or Reformed or whatever it might be. Whatever moniker that we or tag or label that we hung around our neck to make us feel confident. If it's not the grace of God in Christ, it's not the right tag. And that's not something that we hang. It's the things that God hangs upon us. The, 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 the Luke 13 the, the, or 15, the prodigal son. The father puts the name on the son and clothes the son and celebrates the son. And that's not something that really relates to us because it is specifically dealing with lost Israel and their hatred of Gentiles. <laughs> that's the point of that teaching so we don't want to impose what it's not teaching but the father gives grace the father saves his people the father is the one who put christ on the cross to be the satisfaction of his right the father is the one who sends the spirit to make you alive the father sends the word into the world the father god almighty christ the son god almighty god the spirit the almighty is the Beginning and the end of salvation. And Jesus will only save sinners. He cannot save people who are not utterly lost. Because if there's anything else in our lives that we hold to, any toehold that we have, any net under us that is not Christ alone, it's... it's, it's not just a crutch. It's a death sentence. So think about these things, beloved. Now here's Paul. He's saying, I'm, I'm the example. So treat and entreat these who are doing like I am and fussing and doing. And there are times, we see in the Corinthians, there are times where the elders have to do difficult things and the church has to do difficult things for unrepentant sin unchanged sin the mind that refuses to relent that's what the word means but there's a process in all of that and so Paul's process to Timothy is to make sure that everyone knows what is required and you know what he's going to say next he's going to entreat Timothy and entrust Timothy to understand that there are people in the church of Christ who make a shipwreck of their faith because they fall away not apostatize, not prove themselves unconverted, but fall away into certain sins, into certain thinking, into certain ideas. And we are to bring them close. We are to encourage and to teach and to correct and sometimes to rebuke. As the scripture gives us instruction, all the while holding fast by faith to the grace of God who has saved us. And then we're to pray. You know what happens when we act and speak and try to manipulate other people in our lives to come alongside our ideas and understanding of things? We don't trust the Lord. But when we pray, we let Him have it. Which is sovereign? Our actions or the Lord's? So beloved, as we finish up today and as we think about these practical things... 
it can be very flustering. Because we can come to say, oh, wow, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm, I'm not doing it right. Amen. We all tell the truth when we say that. And then we can all tell the truth and be settled in our spirit to know that Christ has saved us. His perfection is ours. His obedience is ours. His righteousness is ours. His death is ours. His life is ours. His glory, listen to this, is ours. For as He is, we also will be. We will share in the glory of Christ. Why? Not because of how faithful we are, not because of how good we've been, not because of how transformative the gospel has been to us, but only because Christ, in His mercy, gave Himself for us. So we rest therein, and that is our only hope. That is the testimony of grace. And it should inform every word, thought, and deed that flows through us. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to hear and to think. Father, you've written your word that we might only not learn, but also think. So help me think. And help the church think. And Father, we ask that you put a stop to the nonsense in our world. If it be your will. In whatever pocket or circle or corner, that you'd put a stop to the sinfulness of your people. That you would bring us to a place of, 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 of hope and confidence in grace. And to apply the gospel in our lives by submitting to you. Trusting in you to serve your purposes for all of these things. And Lord, even when things aren't going our way and we find ourselves in the midst of things. Father, help us to then realize we can just rest. And Father, there will be people who in this world will hear things about wars and politics and finances and people and celebrities and all sorts of stuff. And we, we find ourselves inundated with just a bunch of nonsense that doesn't matter. Even though people's lives are important, even though circumstances are important, Father, you have ordained it and you have forbidden your people to be caught up in all of this paranoia. All of this anxiety. All of this stress. And the more we eat, the worse it is. And then we cry out to you to help us. But Father, we sit down at the table of grace and we push it aside and we devour the world. Lord, keep us from our love of the world. And when our heart condemns us, Lord, you promise that you're greater than our heart. So bring us back to your word. Show us the gospel. Help us to forgive one another. Help us to be reconciling to each other as we're able, as long as it is up to us. And that when we offer an invitation for reconciliation, Lord, and someone bites our hand, that is not our fault. We're to shake the dust off our sandals and continue to move, knowing that you are sovereign in all these circumstances. Father, help us to share our needs with each other. Hiding and being silent and being hurt is not of your spirit. But confessing our sins, confessing our needs, expressing our concerns and understanding in a safe place to know no one will be condemned for it. But Lord, we often condemn ourselves because of the way we act and the way we judge. 
So give us the grace as you have saved us by it to continue in it one day at a time. And we thank you for your mighty work of salvation through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.